We don't often see people standing up to the regime in China. Uh, it's a very obviously authoritarian regime. It, it has in the past used very heavy force against its own citizenry. They would kill a thousand people just to find the right one. We had this idea that as long as we trade with China economically, eventually they will democratize or they will adopt our values and approach to freedom and all these things and they'll look more like us. And I think enough time has gone by and enough real world examples have shown that that's probably not the case. And it doesn't seem that their values have changed. I mean, what's happened during COVID with Hong Kong, what's happened with the Uyghur Muslims in the Northwest, what's happened with these very draconian lockdown measures and everything, and, and just how China has been acting on the world stage. The attitude in Hollywood, perhaps, towards China, it has been this approach of, you know, avoiding ruffling feathers. You know, China is a major market. I've experienced it firsthand. I mean, so when people say, you know, Hollywood's concerned about losing the, the Chinese market and all of this, it's, it's true. I mean, there are consequences, you know, but at the same time, I also feel we talk about how we value the rights that we have to, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of belief. We value all of these things. But when someone goes through all that they went through to be able to share our story, and then we're like, wow, it's not convenient for me, or, or this is too difficult, then I don't know if we really truly have those 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 freedoms and those values if we're willing to give them away like that. I think if we if we value them, we need to exercise them, these rights and these freedoms that we have. My guest today is Jason Loftas, director of Eternal Spring. Today he'll talk about the story behind his movie and how Hollywood is censored by the Chinese Communist Party. I'm Siamai Korami. Welcome to California Insider. Jason, it's great to have you on. Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. You know, one of the things that we've been covering on this show, because there's a lot of Chinese people in California, and there's mm -hmm. a lot of similarities between what happens in China and California. There's a lot of ties between China and California. You've made a documentary mm -hmm. about China, which is a fascinating documentary. I actually watched it. Can you tell us more about this documentary? Sure. The film is called Eternal Spring, and it's an animated documentary that looks at a TV hijacking in China. It, it, it centers on a, a group of repressed Falun Gong adherents in a city in, in northeast China called Changchun. And uh, it was this unprecedented breach of the Chinese Communist Party's monopoly on the control of information and communication in China. And it resulted in a very heavy uh, crackdown with thousands of people being arrested, according to human rights groups. And we speak with witnesses to many cases of torture and death in the aftermath of this. But it's also a story about this, this really this unprecedented uh, hijacking effort, this effort to counter the government's narrative. We don't often see people standing up to the regime in China. Uh, it's a very obviously authoritarian regime. It, it has in the past used very heavy force against its own citizenry. People eventually, they need a voice in how they're treated, right? And I think what happened with Falun Gong is that through a lot of the Communist Party's repressions of different communities over time, it was always limited to a certain group or a certain community. And as a result, the rest of the people would just avoid being part of that group. And so with the Falun Gong persecution, which we get into a little bit in this film, um, they, were, they were treated very harshly when the authorities cracked down and banned their, their spiritual practice. And at the same time, there was this um, you know, contemporaneous propaganda effort where the, the, all the state media channels were constantly denouncing these people as evil and dangerous and we need to get rid of Falun Gong. It's a danger to society and this kind of message. And I think the combination of the seriousness of the persecution and the severity of the propaganda made a lot of Chinese people just want to not get involved and not want to know what Falun Gong adherents were suffering. And so I think overseas we've witnessed that where Chinese communities, you know, either to a certain extent believe the Chinese government's narrative about Falun Gong or at least profess to because it's a lot it's inconvenient to be associated with Falun Gong, which is being repressed in China, and they know the risks of that. But I've seen a shift more recently with this film. So the film was, we've worked on it for a number of years, but we released it 
earlier this year, and we've been traveling, uh, you know, to film festivals and such with the film. And I've noticed a, a change in the response from the Chinese people. And I'm not re referring specifically to the Falun Gong communities, which obviously there's been a lot of support from Falun Gong communities because it's not often that the, the, the story of Falun Gong is reflected on screen. This know. is one of those issues that a lot of people don't know about, the persecution right. of Falun Gong. It's like 100 million people in China, right? That yeah, it's a large issue. And it's one of those, it was talked about early on in the persecution. Falun Gong was introduced in 1992. It's a, it's a form of... Uh, kind of like a, a Chinese, uh, people look at it as a Chinese yoga. So it, it, was, it came about in the midst of the Qigong boom in China and it became the most popular among these Qigong practices. Uh, there were estimates that were 70 to potentially 100 million people practicing it, so numbers even outnumbering Communist Party membership by 1999. And because it wasn't something that the Communist Party had control over uh, ideologically, I think there was a concern there and the authorities stamped it out and, and said they banned it and they started to repress people and throw people into prisons and labor camps who continued to practice. There was this kind of gap between the Chinese people, I felt. A lot of people were scared of the Falun Gong issue or wanted to avoid it. But what I've seen more recently is that Chinese people, perhaps as a result of these very heavy lockdown measures, and you know, we're talking about people being sent in the middle of the night just because someone in the building next to them had a COVID case sent off to quarantine camps and these kinds of like very heavy handed approaches, you know, people being locked inside their homes, there's many cases. And of course, the most egregious thing that really sort of I think was a boiling point or a tipping point for a lot of people in China was in the northwest of the country. Um, you know, where people had been sort of barricaded in their homes and there was a fire and people believed that as a result of them being barricaded in there during the lockdown that people lost their lives. And so people really sort of, there was an uproar in response to that and things really spread. But I think what I've been noticing is that the Chinese people have felt that it isn't just a Falun Gong issue. And I think this is something the Communist Party has been very successful at over time, which is always just sort of an us versus them dynamic with any of the groups that are being repressed. It sort of, it promotes an allegiance to the Communist Party because you want to avoid being in the minority group that's being persecuted. Whether that's the Uyghur Muslims in the Northwest, there's this, hey, these are, these are terrorists, or you know the Tibetan community are presented as separatists, and Falun Gong is is you know is branded as evil and dangerous and all these kinds of things. This narrative, even if people don't fully believe it, they want to believe it because they don't want to be part of that group that's repressed. But when Chinese people themselves, en masse, are feeling the repression of the Communist Party, and they have in recent times, there's a change in perspective that I've noticed, where Chinese people who are not from the Falun Gong community are looking at this story in this film and, and saying. Instead of wanting to avoid the Falun Gong subject, they're saying, how have these people withstood the persecution that they've been enduring for the last 20 years? Where does that strength come from? Because now they're sensing it's not an issue of Falun Gong. It's not an issue of any one of these groups. It's an issue of the Chinese regime and its lack of respect for the rights of its own people. And so I found that this shift, you know, of course, it's a, it's a very unfortunate thing that the, that the Chinese people at large are suffering. But there's a positive in there, at least in the sense that I think that there is a growth in empathy for people understanding some of these repressed groups that they've been isolated. They're now starting to see them, I think, with more empathy and a kind of shared concern because they're all suffering under the Communist Party. The economy is not doing well. And with the current government spending irresponsibly, the inflation could get worse. How will you protect your hard-earned savings? The answer is gold. Gold is the world's oldest, most proven form of currency. It's there for you when inflation soars and when other assets go sideways. And that's why Birch Gold is so thrilled to introduce a new product that reimagines gold as a currency, the gold back. This month, you'll get a free gold back for every $5,000 purchased. When you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a precious metal IRA with Birch Gold by December 22nd, Birch Gold will help you own gold and silver in a tax-sheltered account 
Visit birchgold.com slash California to claim your free info kit on gold. Then talk to one of their precious metal specialists. Plus, with every purchase you make before December 22nd, you'll get a free gold back. This is a great gift just in time for Christmas. Once again, visit birchgold.com slash California and protect your savings with gold today. So essentially, Chinese people are uniting. I mean, I see, I see hints of it. Of course, there, that's, not a, that's not a massive shift overnight, but I've, it's something that I hadn't seen before because I've been in and around the Falun Gong community now for over a couple of decades, and I've always sensed the sensitivity of it um, with the Chinese public. But I've noticed this change in screenings. There are more and more Chinese people who are coming up and really connecting with this story and looking uh, at the example in the film as a source of inspiration for themselves rather than as something that they want to avoid or that they find too sensitive. So I do sense this shift. So this was a hijacking. This yeah. story is about the hijacking. Can you yeah. tell us more about this? So I'll give you a little bit of background on how the whole thing came about for me because I think that gives you context. I was making a kung fu video game a few years ago. I work across different video videos. game. Yeah, video okay. game. Yeah, and we were looking for an artist who could draw these hand-drawn panels because the game had a sort of visual novel component to it, and it was a narrative game. And we learned about this artist who was living in New York at the time, named Dashong, and he's originally from China. And he had drawn for Jin Yong, who's the leading kung fu novelist in China. He was also drawing in the West for you know, Star Wars comics and uh, Justice League of America, all the big comic franchises. So we thought he was a perfect fit because he, was, you know, he had a, a great track record in comics, but also the cultural background and everything. So we brought him up to our studio in Toronto, and we were collaborating with Dashong, and then we learned his story. Um, we actually learned that he came from the same hometown as my wife and producing partner, Masha Loftus, which is a city in northeast China called Changchun. Now, Masha's experience is very different. She's not part of the Falun Gong community. Um, she is the daughter of a mid-level government official in China, and she had never connected with any dissident or persecuted groups. So hearing what people had been enduring under her nose in her own city, in her own hometown, really hit home for her. And she felt this is an issue, you know, the people should understand what Falun Gong practitioners are enduring, but this is a broader issue as well for Chinese people. If something like this repression that's happening and the human rights consequences of it can happen here and people don't even know about it, this is a real concern for our country. So this was her motivation. And for me, I'd had a fascination with Falun Gong. I was interested in Eastern philosophy and meditation when I was in high school in the 90s. And I had encountered Falun Gong before there being a crackdown in China. And so I had experienced it more as a to me, it seemed something positive and benign, this like a Chinese yoga type thing. And it had these, you know, these virtues of truthfulness and compassion and forbearance. And, and I resonated with it. And then a year later, the Chinese authorities are saying, these people are evil and dangerous and we need to get rid of this practice. And I just couldn't reconcile my own encounters with Falun Gong in the community and the narrative that I was hearing from China. I was in high school. I knew very little about the political situation in China, but that sparked in me this interest and concern for the human rights situation and wanting to understand more. So I had this sort of uh, concern. My wife, having come from the hometown, also had her own motivations. And then when we came across Dashong and we learned that he had had to leave his home behind in the aftermath of this heist. So essentially, in the aftermath of the persecution of Falun Gong in China, there was just this onslaught, this constant perpetual demonization in the state-run press in China. And they controlled all the channels of communication. So Falun Gong went from being something that was tolerated and even some quarters uh, you know, encouraged or you know, praised by the authorities in China in some channels, even in state-run media, immediately it went to being this, you know, this scourge on society that needed to be eliminated. In response to that, it was also underpinning this repression campaign that was happening. So people who continued to practice Falun Gong were being arrested and detained and thrown into labor camps and tortured. And there were many even death cases that were being reported out of these facilities. Uh, so 
really severe mistreatment of these people who continue to practice their beliefs. Um, you know, so in the midst of that, the, the Falun Gong community in China was looking at how do we respond to this? And what they would do is they would hand out leaflets or you know, little homemade DVDs with their own kind of messages on it to counter the government narrative. But it was really, you know, they were up against this massive state media apparatus. And they so were, were trying to tell people they were what trying this to, is in. Yeah, they're trying to say, this is not what we're about. What you're hearing in the state media, that's not, that's not who we are. Uh, you know, this is what we're about. And also, by the way, we're being tortured. We're being imprisoned. These things are being, not being talked about, but we're being severely mistreated at the same time. So they were trying to get their own, their own message out. But it was difficult because for Chinese people, they had witnessed uh, so much of the state misinformation campaign that there was a suspicion and a, and a fear. And so they would even turn in their neighbors. You know, they, someone would be handing out a leaflet or putting them on doorsteps and, you know, a neighbor would be reporting them to the cops before they even read it. So they felt that they were up against this, this you know, it was a mismatch in terms of their ability to communicate. So there's a you know, group of I've them. Been told, yeah. yes. I've been told in the middle of your words, I've been told, yeah. I lived in China for a couple of years. Yes. And there was a saying that if there's three people, one out of every three is a spy. Yes, so well, people were, people were definitely concerned and people were being turned in and people were being, you know, cardened off to labor camps and prisons and detention centers and being harshly mistreated. We have many witnesses that we spoke with in this film who suffered torture and human rights groups have affirmed these kinds of things as well. Um, but there was a group of these people in northeast China in this city in Changchun, and this is also actually the city in which Falun Gong was first introduced. And they felt we need to do something bigger to counteract this, this message that is underpinning the persecution that we're enduring. And so they hatched this plan to climb the television poles, you know, with home, essentially primitive DVD players, like home CD-ROMs, essentially. And they had to, they were going to power these things with the power wires that were in the air. So they needed to carry a transformer, which is very heavy. You know, they duct tape these things together and, you know, wire cutters. And they would put this thing all together and they would intercept the signal. This is their plan and interrupt this state run television, China Central Television in prime time and broadcast their own messaging. And this was just an absolutely unprecedented feat, right? And it's a group of, you know, from a storytelling, from a filmmaking perspective, it has all of the elements of a, you know, of a high story, you know, this like band of under, eclectic band of underdogs pulling off this impossible thing. Of course, it's a real story with real human rights consequences. People suffered immensely in the aftermath of this. So that's the, the sort of genesis of this story. And Dashong, our artist who was working with us on this Kung Fu video game, he didn't directly climb the television poles, but he was part of the Falun Gong community. And in the aftermath of this event, the authorities arrested everyone. In Dashong's words, they would kill a thousand people just to find the right one. And human rights groups, you know, reported that there were in the thousands of people who were arrested in Changchun in the aftermath of this event. Dashong himself was briefly arrested. He endured torture. He ended up fleeing, you know, leaving his home behind. So this event had an, a significant impact on his life. And he wishes to understand it. And he wants to have a better picture, some kind of closure of how this all came about, why people did what they did. He was sympathetic to the idea of countering the government's narrative. But also at the beginning of this, he has this question about whether it was the right approach because the human cost was so severe. And as a filmmaker, I thought that was very interesting because I think a lot of people will have a question about, you know, why do people do this and why do they make such sacrifices and was it worth it? And so we use him as our point of view. And then, of course, he's such a talented artist that he's drawing as he interviews other survivors. And we end up finding the only surviving TV hijacker who's outside of China, a man who goes by the alias Mr. White, who's living in Korea. And that really helps to connect with the entire story about how they did what they did, why they did it, and everything that happened afterwards. And so Dashong draws all of these things as he's because doing these interviews. Because you cannot go into China and, and actually make a movie like that. Right? Yes, for sure. I mean, uh, 
it, it would put people at risk if, and let alone it's likely impossible to be able to actually shoot and, and complete a production there. It's a very sensitive subject. And so the people we're speaking with are all people who have now made it out of China. And if they're shown on screen, they adamantly want to tell their story. Um, we, we definitely can't be involved in not only putting people, you know, forcing people to face trauma that they've endured, but also putting people at any additional risk. So these are people who've come out, they've already endured a great deal because they wanted to speak out and now they're really adamant that they want to tell their story. And so Dashong's art uh, brings this story to life. And then we have a small animation group that used his illustrations and bring them to life in animation. So we animate this story of the TV hijacking as well as Dashong's we're showing Dashong's process playing out on screen as he creates this art and comes to understand this event that impacted his life. In the process of making this movie, was there a moment where you, something came to you that you didn't know about? Well, for sure. I mean, meeting Mr. White was a big revelation because uh, I was aware of the event essentially as news. We knew that it had happened. It made the world news pages in a number of newspapers, but it was kind of like, hey, the Falun Gong, community, or Falun Gong group hijacked the state-run television, right? And then... That was it, and people didn't know how they did it, why they did it, and there was co there was conversation about this story. But until you meet someone who was directly involved, as we then did with Mr. White, you don't know exactly why they did what they did. You know, it's kind of you're a few steps removed. So, it was very interesting for me to learn what motivated them because I think it's natural to have the questions like, "Is this overzealous?" I mean, people paid with their lives in some cases. You know, you can't practice your spiritual belief if you're not alive. So did people, is this, is this overzealous? And people, I think, understandably have some of those questions. But I really gained a sense of the, I think, the nobility as well in this action because I think what the people involved in this film or in this story, what they understood was that this narrative, this narrative of hate about Falun Gong was what was underpinning the persecution that people were enduring. And it was also pitting the Chinese public against their own people in the Falun Gong community. They understood that even if they were going to pay personally a significant price for, for pulling this off, that they would at least get a message to their fellow countrymen that they would not be able to look at the state-run narrative the same way again. You know, Because for an hour, almost an hour in prime time, hundreds of thousands, potentially more people you know, witness something and they can't unsee that. And so they, they will never look at the state-run government propaganda in the same way. And that doesn't mean they're all gonna get the courage to stand up to the Communist Party immediately, but it plants a seed and they might be less willing to turn in their neighbor if they see them meditating. And perhaps as things progress further on in the future, they may, like we're talking now, about with what's right happening now, now what people saying. recognize that, okay, this core issue isn't what I've been told by the Communist Party. It's not an issue of this group and this group and this group and this group. It's maybe it's the Communist Party who's mistreating these people and doesn't respect the rights of its own people. And the movie has uh, has been well received, right? You guys are getting... I would say so. I mean, uh, we're, we're humbled by the response we've had. I think we've had 15 festival awards now since March. So pretty much every couple of weeks, we've had another festival honor of some type. Um, and we were selected in August as Canada's entry for the Academy Awards in the International Feature, uh, Best Feature category, which is the, the first documentary, first animated film, and first Mandarin language film to be selected by Canada for that honor. So it's, it's very humbling. We do feel we're representing a lot of talented people across those different sectors. You know, some great animation talent, documentary talent, and some wonderful uh, Chinese-Canadian creatives and also uh, immigrants to Canada who carry remarkable stories with them. And we're happy to highlight all, all of that in this film. Um, we were also qualified uh, for the Oscars in the uh, in the best animated feature and best documentary feature categories as well. So um, we've been obviously the response has been beyond what we had expected or anticipated, uh, and it's it's humbling as a filmmaker. You obviously want your work to be appreciated and enjoyed, and that's very rewarding. 
But beyond that, it's when you spend so much time with the material, um, these people, even though you're not able to meet them face to face, some of those who have been imprisoned or who've lost their lives, you're not able to directly meet them. You feel like you're kind of carrying their story on because they may have been, they may have lost their lives in an effort to speak out. And now you're able to shine a light on their story. And you see people watching this and connecting with their story. And that's rewarding as well. So, um, you know, I think all of that has, has kind of come together with the, with the recognition that the film is having. And do you think we're doing enough in the movie space with the human rights issues in general? We have a lot of regimes across the globe that are doing... I mean, there are a lot of wonderful filmmakers doing work in human rights areas. There are a lot of uh, festivals that are devoted specifically to human rights. And there are other filmmakers doing films on China. I've, I've met a number of them, engaged with them, seen their films, and, and really... Uh, you know, I, I stand with them as well in the work that they're doing. But I do think that there are certain uh, subject matters that are considered more sensitive. And I think for a long time, when we look at, you know, the attitude in Hollywood, perhaps towards China, it has been this approach of, you know, avoiding ruffling feathers in some regard. You know, China is a major market. I've experienced it firsthand. I mean, I met Dashong making a video game. The video game we were making was being published by Tencent, which is a major media company in China. And, uh, you know, just in the midst of making this film, we were releasing that game. And all of a sudden, our game disappears from the storefronts in China. Wow. And when I reach my rep over at Tencent, I'm told the Chinese government visited them and forced them to cut ties with my company. And they said, it's not an issue of the game. Tencent had already brought it and, and gained the approval of two different censorship bureaus and two different ministries of the Chinese government. Everything was fine. Uh, it's not an issue of the game. It's an issue of me and my company. And they asked me, are you doing something not aligned with the Chinese government direction? And at the Even same outside of China, outside of China, for sure. And, you know, and then my wife's family members who are still in the Northeast uh, started being contacted by the Public Security Bureau and being harassed and told, we know what your family members are up to overseas. So they're sending a message that they know who our relatives are and this kind of thing. And you're aware that it's a sensitive subject and you understand that there might be blowback and consequences as a result of exploring a subject like this. But it hits home when it happens to you. You know, you realize that, yes, this is real. So when people say, you know, Hollywood's concerned about losing the, the Chinese market and all of this. It's, it's true. I mean, there are consequences, you know, but at the same time, I also feel a couple of things. One is I personally built a relationship with the subjects in this film. I mean, I spent time with their stories. I saw what they endured and they had gone through hell in many cases to be able to share their story. And some of them were not able to share their story. They just, you know, lives were lost. Right. And so what we face comparatively from outside of China in the West, even if it's a lost business opportunity or whatnot, I think it pales in comparison to what these people are enduring. And so when we talk about how we value the rights that we have to, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of belief, we value all of these things. Um, but when someone goes through all that they went through to be able to share our story, and then we're like, well, it's not convenient for me, or, or this is too difficult, then I don't know if we really truly have those, those, those freedoms and those values if we're willing to give them away like that. I think if we, if we value them, we need to exercise them, these rights and these freedoms that we have. And so, you know, it's not just a decision I made because I have much less at stake than the subjects in this film, people who still have family ties in China, my wife who has relatives there, and again, not from the Falun Gong community, so it's not something that has sort of personal skin in the game for her. But they were all adamant that this is a story we need to tell. And I'm touched and inspired by their conviction. And so I felt it's important to match that myself and, and uh, you know, to tell this story. And so, yes, there's some blowback and there's some consequences. But also, as we've discussed, like the film has been extraordinarily well received. And I think there's a lot of people now who are saying, 
There's some subjects on China that we're, we just, for too long, we avoided talking about them. We were too concerned for too long, and we need to be able to share these stories. Do you think Hollywood is changing the way they're looking at China based on the reception that you got, the awards that you're winning? I don't know. I would, yeah, it would be great if Hollywood was paying close attention to my film, but I, I don't know if it's coming from that. There's other angles that, it, that I think it happened, where this happens, too, is that they, people are recognizing that there was a fallacy in our approach with China, I think, for a long period of time. We had this idea that as long as we trade with China economically, eventually they will democratize or they will adopt our values and approach to freedom and all these things, and they'll look more like us. And I think enough time has gone by and enough real-world examples have shown that that's probably not the case. What has happened is that we've become highly entrenched economically, um, you know, enriched the leadership, and in, in, you know, the regime has become more powerful on the global stage. And it doesn't seem that their values have changed. I mean, we've really seen that over the last couple of years, what's happened during COVID with Hong Kong, what's happened with the Uyghur Muslims in the Northwest, what's happened with these very draconian lockdown measures and everything, and, and just how China has been acting on the world stage. In a lot of cases, it seems that, in fact, maybe we have changed because there's certain things that we have avoided talking about that we, we have always said were, were values that we hold dear. And now sometimes we're avoiding those things. You know, and there was just the example I know that the thing in sort of interesting sort of anecdotes that were in the news in terms of like, you know, what happened with the Doctor Strange film and, and just how, you know, what is a newspaper box or something that was in a, in a trailer, but it had said something in Chinese characters in the background about the Communist Party. And that was enough. So, I mean, you could even tiptoe around avoiding upsetting the Communist Party and then something that you completely don't even notice could upset them. In some regards, it's arbitrary. And so it might be like a you know, it, it might be impossible to have that as your long-range business plan of constantly satisfying a regime that is unpredictable at times and, you know, and arbitrary. And we're also making movies that we watch and we're, we're uh, custom making it so the Chinese Communist Party likes it, so that it goes into the Communist Party's market. But in the meantime, we are watching those movies as well right here. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not We're kind a, of brainwashing not ourselves a, in a sense. I'm sure that because of the sensitivity around the China subject, that there are subjects that get avoided. I mean, I've heard just anecdotally from others, you know, people who were involved in a film uh, on another human rights subject in China dealing with the Uyghurs that had a, you know, a major offer from a major, you know, I won't name names here, but a major company, and then that was pulled because of the sensitivity. We've seen it with our film where it's invited even to Asian festivals in North America. Um, we get an invitation and then an invitation is rescinded because, you know, they reviewed it and said, it, well, it's not the film. It's just that this is too sensitive. So there is this kind of thing that happens. And I'm sure as a result of that, some stories are, are missed or not talked about. Do you about. think there's some movement from the Communist Party behind the scenes to call these people and tell them not to do it? And, or, or um, I, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, you never know. Um, I mean, I've heard from other filmmakers. In, in some cases, a, a festival programmer will share with a film. So I know a, another Chinese-Canadian filmmaker who had a film that was sensitive to, around human rights in China, dealt with that, and it was playing at different festivals. And, and they were directly told by one of the festival programmers that the Chinese consulate in that area had asked to review all the Chinese films. And, and his film was not provided because, well, he's a Canadian. And then the consulate was specifically saying, no, I want to review this one. I was like, well, it's a Canadian wow. film. You can't. So in that case, the programmer was willing to share with the filmmaker this. In most cases, if there is pressure, they're not normally going to tell you that. Um, and so you don't know. I mean, I just know that uh, in the Asian region specifically, like a lot of major festivals looked at our film right down to the last moment or even gave us a sort of pre-selection and then there was sensitivity. And, and so a number of them would pull out and some of, sometimes they would tell us, a major broadcaster in Asia would tell us, this subject's too sensitive. 
But I think what happens is that when enough people resonate with the film and enough places start to show it and enough people are talking about it, it makes it less for each of these people who are maybe a little bit more concerned or a little bit more fearful about speaking out. They're no longer the one that's sticking their neck out all on their own. So that's why I think every, every bit of recognition that the film has had, every bit of support from people who recognize that these themes are important, the religious freedom in China, freedom of speech in China, the ability to stand up and, you know, and, and uh, question authority, all of those things. Um, people who are showing that support, I think it really has a big impact because more of that encourages more people to say, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to say what I think because enough people are doing it, right? And do you have any other thoughts for our audience besides watching the movie? Well, that would be a great thing. <laughs> that would be a great thing as well. I mean, I'm in town to share the film. Um, I mean, look, there's... We're there... going to have a link. You're going to have a, you're gonna have a showing on, on Tuesday. Before. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's playing at the American Cinematheque uh, Los Feliz Theater, I believe it is. So I'm sure you'll put the right link up and people will be able to find it. I'm sorry. I've had a, quite a run of screening, so I may get some information incorrect, but I'm sure the link will send them to the right place. Um, so I'm in town for that. And, you know, I would just say in terms of like what else to be said, um, we're doing the live Q&A, so I'm, I'm out here to do that, and uh, the film subject, Dashong, the artist at the center of the film, will be at some of these Q&As as well. Um, I understand your show covers California in general. I'll be up uh, in the Mill Valley for a screening there as well uh, in, in the Bay Area um, later this week, so you can people can check all of that out there as well. Um, we can have conversations. So when you come out to a Q&A, there's so much I think we can talk about in this film. Some of the things we didn't get into sort of artistically and all of that as well. I think there's layers of interesting things to discuss. We talked a lot about sort of the sensitivities around China and there's a lot more to explore there too. And that's why I like being at these is, you know, the opportunity to share a story with someone and just to get so many different perspectives and questions, you know, and, and have a conversation around these themes. And I think it's healthy that we have those conversations and these are conversations we need to have. So I appreciate it. And this is a very powerful story a number of people putting their lives on the line to tell the truth for an hour broadcasting, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it resonated with me. And even though I haven't had the same experience of these individuals, as a filmmaker, you, you, uh, you want to understand why something touches you and what it is that's universal about that. And then when you're making a film, you're just trying to convey whatever, whatever has impacted you, you want to share that with your audience. And, and you know, fortunately, we've been having that response from, from audience members, and we've been all over the world with this film, and people are really resonating with the ideas in it. So I look forward to having more conversations about it. Jason Loftus, director of Eternal Spring. It was great to have you on California Insider. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We want to ask you to sign up to our California Insider email list. You will receive exclusive updates on our upcoming documentary and get the latest inside stories on everything that's happening in California. Go to insiderca.com and sign up 